God's job is to do the miracles. Our job is to believe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, all the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. You can subscribe now for just £3.95 a month at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Christine Kane, best-selling author, speaker, evangelist and activist. Together with her husband, Nick, Christine set up and runs A21, a global organisation with a mission to end slavery. They run a network of churches across Greece and Eastern Europe and Propel Women, which is a ministry which helps women to develop their leadership potential and fulfil their God-given purposes. Today, we've been talking about her life, ministry and family and her new book, How Did I Get Here? Finding Your Way Back to God When Everything Is Pulling You Away. For those people that have never come across you before, Christine, would you give us a potted history of how you became a Christian? Because it is such a cool story. It is. And it's such, I wish, Emma, that it, was, it wasn't quite a linear journey. It was like everybody else. It's sort of like a lot of fits and starts. But, you know, I was born in Sydney, Australia. So daughter of, uh, I'm the daughter of Greek immigrants. So Greek is my first language. Um, but, you know, when I was 33, I found out that um, I wasn't quite who I thought I was. I found out that I had been left in a hospital unnamed and unwanted when I was born and that I had been adopted. And it's a little bit wild. It's quite a shocking thing to find out you're not who you thought you were at mm. 33. So it was, um, you know, obviously right from the outset, um, there was abandonment and there was adoption and the, I guess feelings of rejection. And I also was the victim of sexual abuse for many, many years um, in my early years of life. Uh, my immediate family was great. It was just that uh, they allowed people into our home that they should have been able to trust that were untrustworthy. And um, so that, as you could imagine, quite messed me up. Of so much shame and uh, so much guilt and um, anger, for sure, and unforgiveness and bitterness. And so, you know, I was kind of a young woman and that was making a lot of poor choices and um, that had just developed a lot of patterns of destructive behaviour and uh, really negative thought patterns. And I think also had experienced so much marginalisation because in Australia, um, when I was growing up, you know, I was born in 1966, so in the 70s and 80s, it was not cool to be Greek. I mean, now, since my big fat Greek wedding, it is so cool to be Greek. And everyone, <laughs> loves, Greek restaurants, and everyone loves feta cheese and everyone loves baklava and dolmades. But it was not cool. The kids at school used to mock and ridicule me for my feta cheese sandwiches, you know, because the Aussie kids would have Vegemite sandwiches. And so, you know, I joke about that, but it was quite traumatic, no doubt, when I was younger. Um, so you could kind of see it was like a perfect storm. You know, there was abuse and abandonment and adoption and marginalisation, um, both because of my gender and ethnicity. I certainly, I grew up in a very strict Greek Orthodox home, so there was no talk um, of a woman that would be able to do anything, um, uh, you know, except for get married and have kids or be a nun. And so I didn't know when I... <laughs> I know, just about your laughing. Extreme choices. <laughs> I, it was, though, because I felt what I now can say, the call of God, I didn't know what it was. Like, you know, I'd be in the Greek church 
And it's a three-hour liturgy in ancient Greek that nobody understands. And I would look at all the icons on the walls and I would think, I want to get my picture on the wall. I wonder what you have to do to get your picture on the church wall. Then I kind of find out that, you know, you have to be martyred. And so I'm like, no, I, no, I'm not into that. So I thought I must be going to be a nun because I, did, I, I just, in my very orthodox way of thought, it was kind of like, I want to work for God. I didn't know what that meant. And the only paradigm I had for a woman was like a nun, to which my mother freaked out when I said, I'm going to apply um, to become a nun. And my, and my mom's like, Christine, you'll never. And I'm like, mom, I'll hang out with the monks. It's cool. He said, there was this pull in me, even as a young girl in a Greek Orthodox mm-hmm. church that understood nothing. God was real to me, not personal, but real. Like, so there was an, a God yeah. awareness with a lot of brokenness. So, you know, my life, like, it was just like so messy, so many people's lives. There was nothing linear or, or sanitized about it, um, just so, so broken. But then at school in Australia, you had religious education, which was compulsory. So you either had Catholic or Protestant. And because I was Orthodox, I had to go to the Catholic one, but I would sneak out of the Catholic one and I would go to the Protestant one because <laughs> there was this Baptist woman. She was just like a mum with three kids, but she had got saved in the 1970s in Australia while she was on an acid trip like in the Jesus movement, like, so she was like a biker's wife got saved on an LSD trip. And I don't know that she ever came down from it, but she encountered Jesus. And so someone that actually seemed to talk to him and know him, it certainly intrigued me. The big turnaround in my life though, I was at Sydney university. So I was still so kind of broken and whatever. And a friend told me that there was an evangelist from England that was a Cypriot Greek um, was, and his name was Jay John. I didn't know anything. This is like in the late eighties, um, you know, was doing kind of a series of talks. Uh, and I didn't even know there were any Greeks that were Christians. I mean, my life was about as far away from God at that point that you could imagine. And mm-hmm. so I went into this seminar at lunchtime at the university of Sydney, I think it's probably around 1987, 88. And there was this like, this dude that I thought looked like Mr. Bean, Jay John, I laugh because we are so close. <laughs> Jay, Jay John, <laughs> um, and he begins to speak the gospel in a way that was just, you know, like so profound to me. And, um, and he was just so gracious to me. Like, you know, I was, I was, I think a lot of my past had really caught up with me. And so I was, a, I was very skeptical mm. um, about the love and the grace of God. And he just kept inviting me out, um, him and his team for his coffee. He didn't care. Like whatever question I asked, my, my tone was certainly not gracious. My, um, and, uh, you know, and I just kept going back. Um, and over that time, that was just so pivotal in bringing me really back to a, a saving relationship with Jesus. Uh, mm. And then, you know, I think about a couple of years after that, I ended up in a local church in Sydney where I, I really started to be formed and shaped and grow as a disciple of Jesus. And that was in 1989. Um, and here we are in 2021 recording. So it's it was like a journey. I think so much of my work across the breadth of the church is reflected in the way that how I even came to Christ was just yeah. through so many streams of the church. And, mm-hmm. and the Lord was setting me up to to really be able to just love the entire breadth of the body of Christ. It's interesting because I also, I remember that same sensation. I went to church first as um, brownies. Back in the day when you had to attend church parade once a month and my my family were not Christians um, and I didn't have any vocabulary or understanding of what it was to have a relationship with Jesus, but I knew 
somehow in my eight-year-old heart that I believed that God was real and I wanted to be there, if that makes sense. So it's, it's yeah, kind of interesting, isn't it, how God sort of plants these little seeds in you, even from a young age. I, I remember distinctly at five, and it's like I, I remember looking around the church and it shows you that there is a, a spirit realm to all this because yeah. something happened before there was any cognitive understanding in mm. my mind. Yeah, which was and what salvation was, um, which gives me great faith even for the gospel around the world that the Holy Spirit, he draws people to Jesus. Like whether we understand it or know it, it just, it is a mystery. It truly is a mystery. I mean, in the years since you've become a Christian, you've been a very busy lady. Anyone <laughs> that wants to look Christine up on the internet, you will see that not only does she run an international organisation that, that has an, a stated aim of ending slavery everywhere for all people, writes, teaches, speaks around the world, runs a bunch of churches in Eastern Europe. You're an evangelist. You, is there any part of life that you would lo- not like to tackle, Christine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's off limits? But, all, you know, it sounds um, broad, but all of it is an outflow of my life and my life experience. And I think mm. all history generally does flow uh, out of that. You know, you think of the kid left in a hospital, my birth certificate doesn't have a name on it, you know, unnamed 2508 of 1966. It would be just like God to not only rescue me, uh, but then use me to rescue others, to take an unnamed, unwanted, abused, adopted girl and go, I'm going to redeem all of those fragments of your broken past. Mm. I'm going to weave them together as a tapestry of my grace. And then out of that, uh, so it's not like I feel like it's a forced thing. I feel like Jesus invites us. You know, your past will do one of two things. It'll either paralyze you, cripple you, shame, guilt, regret, condemnation will cause you to shut down. Or the true freedom and redemption, God can take those broken fragments and give someone else a future, which is why the enemy loves to attack us in that area so yeah, much. Yeah. So I laugh, Emma, because like every time we put a trafficker in jail or rescue, you know, a young woman or a child, I think, devil, you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it. I feel like Joseph, who in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said to his brothers, you know, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for this mm. very purpose. And I, I feel like when, you know, when scripture says we are more than conquerors, um, conquering, I think, is overcoming, like by the grace of God, more than is making the enemy pay for what he did to me. You know, like, it's like, oh, oh yes, tried to take me out. And um, the greatest thing I can do is to, by God's grace, bear much fruit for the glory of God um, because yeah. he put us on this earth to bear fruit for his glory. Yeah. I think, you know, if you read the list, it all sounds exhausting and it would be if I was striving, but I think when it's an outflow of your relationship with God, it's not like I'd, I haven't, like, tried to start something or tried to invent like I don't sit in a room and go what can I do today and invent it Um, I I think it's a response to the invitation of God so then as long as I'm abiding in him and my strength comes from him my significance comes from him my security comes from him then I think the testimony is he says you know no eye has seen no ear has heard nor has it entered into any person's heart the things that God has for those that love him and that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we could ever ask hope think or imagine Mm. so we've reached that stuff but I don't know if we really believe it. So I feel like my responsibility is to abide in the vine and then God through my life by his grace and mercy uh, would bear much fruit that only he could bear. Like, so yeah. I, um, I laugh because I'm like, I'm doing so much more than I could ever do. I, I Like I come off stuff and I go, I don't know who that person was, but it, I, I can't even do that in my natural strength. Like I'm not even that smart. I couldn't have been. When I, 
even what has happened with A21, I mean, during the pandemic, I mean, I pray we've been obedient and faithful and pivoted and done everything God's called us to do. Mm. But the results have been supernatural. We have more uh, survivors in our aftercare programs around the world today than ever. And that doesn't even make sense coming out of a global pandemic year. Uh, more traffickers uh, prosecuted, convicted, sentenced than, like, than ever in our whole history. And I'm like, you this is the exceeding, abundant, above and beyond. I mean, just today, you know, we got six more Tony Awards um, for our new Can You See Me film and it got Cannes Film Festival Awards, and which is all prevention and awareness. And, to, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a devastating story, but it's a true story of, of a, a survivor story. Um, but the way it has really helped awaken people to this global injustice and what human trafficking is. And I'm kind of sitting here going, oh, my gosh, this is like being a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we, we are not that good. That's all I can say to you is we are not, but God is. Yeah, and so yeah. I think what I have is that I just believe the stuff. I think God's just looking for anyone that is willing to believe it because I'm. no one needs to tell me, Chris, you're not smart enough. I'm like, I'm like I know. You're not gifted <laughs> enough. I'm not. You are Lord, Christine, I know you make mistakes, Christine. I know, I know. This is why I need God. You know, if I could just have the faith of Abraham, or it says Abraham just believed God, and so that that you know, God's job is to do the miracles. Our job is to believe. So yeah. if I can just believe Him, you kind of read out and you go, look at all the stuff you do. I'm like, wow, yeah, I know. Like, it's just isn't God awesome. <laughs> It's brilliant. And I think, you know, if anybody has read any of your books or listened to any of your podcasts, the, the thing that I love most about the way that you communicate is that you are so searingly honest about everything that you've been through, whether it is the abuse and the adoption or your battles with cancer or the fact that you will say over and over again, things that like you've just said to me, I'm, I'm flawed, I couldn't do this myself. But what comes across very strongly is that you live the life you talk about. And I love that about the way that you communicate. And I think that's a really important thing for people who lead ministries and are in the public eye to communicate to people. Otherwise, there, there is this risk that the rest of us sort of feel like, oh, well, we could never be like that. Whereas actually, I think what you're saying is that this is the mandate all of us have and all we have to do is really live out the truth of the gospel. Oh, absolutely. There's just, there, there are no super Christians. There's an amazing God. Um, the issue is whether we would believe uh, that God is who he says he is. And it's always challenging because there are people that would inevitably, there's the flip side, and particularly if you're a public figure or you've got a blue check mark, you know, people are like, everyone's got an opinion about, about how it should be. Mm. So there are other people who's like, well, you're not educated enough. And it's like, I know. Uh, you know, you, you, there are people more qualified. I know. There are people more holy. I know. I'm like, I'm like I keep sitting here going, I know. Um and yet we we say things like God will use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Um, and then when he does, we don't like it. <laughs> That's my point. When he does, we, we say, you know, God use flaw, uses flawed people. So then if you're a public figure, you make a mistake. I mean, you own it, you apologize, you make it right. It, it's still you're going to get the naysayers. And it's like, well, on one hand, you're saying, we could, we're human and we can make mistakes. And the next thing, if if there is a set, and in, in, there's two sides to it. I, I I have a lot of sympathy for people that feel that are in the public eye that have a lot of pressure, that find it very hard to be totally transparent because uh, because there's just so much attack that comes. For me, I had such a messy start. You know, it was all out there from the beginning. So it's like, well, you're, um, you know, it's like there it is, yeah. and it is it is really challenging. I think in today's culture. Um, to 
I got saved and I got launched into ministry when there was no internet, when there was no social media. It made it a lot easier. Like it really did because you you had to hear from God. You you had space to grow. You had space to grow. Like nowadays everything is so public that, um, you know, any kind of mistake, and I think in our cancel culture it's even 10 times worse, you know, you just mm-hmm. um, people are just not given are given so little grace, so little mercy. And, and so I think... Um, I get it. I get it from both sides. I get why some people are like, oh, man, you know, this is just really hard. My goal in my openness is to say to everyone, God can use anyone. And I actually really believe this. And I think you would see it through the work of A21 and Propel. It's not all built around me at all. We have over 100 and uh, I think nearly 150 staff in A21 in 15 countries around the world. I am all about raising up and empowering ordinary everyday people to fulfill their their purpose and their god dream with propel we have 4000 chapters in 120 countries around the world i want to see women keep raising up women and keep you know we got 100 chapters in pakistan and so of course a propel chapter looks different in a village in pakistan than it does in um, a borough in new york but it's still those women empowering their women within their cultural context of what would be appropriate. And that makes me just so happy. I'm like, I I don't want a Pakistani village woman to be like me. I want her to be the woman God's called her to be and, um, and that she can know flourishing in the midst of all of that. So, you know, um, it is a matter of just, if I could connect people to Jesus and then within their context, they can outwork what being following Jesus looks like. Um, But if I could connect the, the kind of believing and the doing, you know, faith without works is dead. And I, I think that's the thing is I walk my, Paul says, I think to the Thessalonian Christians, he said, um, you know, I share with you uh, not only uh, like my doctrine, but my whole life. And that's why, you know, I'm going to stick Nick on there. I'm going to stick my daughter, Catherine or Sophia, you know, I mean, we're even doing this and I'm like, oh, I've got my baseball cap on and my glasses. I've just come off the treadmill. Well, that, I, at some point I've got to decide I cannot be made up like I am for television for everything I do, or I will never have a life. I'll never be on a treadmill. So I'm like, well, you'll here I am. I want to share my life and not a filtered life or a very well curated life. I'm kind of just going, listen, I want us all to make it to the finish line. I want everyone to fulfill their purpose. You do you, whatever works for you, that's fine. But my goal isn't to uh, to kind of be any kind of professional career Christian. We are followers <laughs> of Jesus and I want to inspire people. I'm like old school revivalists. I really believe there's a heaven and a hell. I really believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, uh, was buried and rose again for our sins. I really believe he is coming back. And I really believe that impacts 24 hours of our day, seven days a week and every sphere of life. Mm. So that means I live a bit like a radical because like I think we all should if we're Jesus followers. You couldn't manufacture this for 33 years. I remember when we first started, people like, man, Christine, you're just an evangelist. You're, you know, you're just on fire. That's because you're single. You're so passionate. Not, it, of course, it couldn't be because of Jesus, but it's because <laughs> I was, and then it's like, um, you just wait till you get married. As if like marriage is a death sentence or something. I don't know. Like it's the it's the the slayer of the passion of Jesus. And then it's then Nick and I got married, and our our ministry went like from local to statewide. And then we got even more passionate. And then people are like, well, that's only that's only because you don't have children. Just wait till you have children. As if like somehow it's in the scripture that when I have children, you're not allowed to be passionate for Jesus anymore. And so then I had one. So then we went to like a a national and international ministry. So it just kept expanding. And then people would say to me, well, one is just an accessory. Wait till you have two. And then it was like, I just got laughing and I'm like, well, (laughs) I'm I'm now 33 years down the track. 
by God's grace, uh, 25 years later, I'm still married. Uh, you know, I have a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old. We're all on fire for Jesus by the grace of God because it really had nothing to do with whether I was my marital status or my child status. It has everything to do with the spirit of God living on the inside of you. And you got to keep stirring up that gift of faith, which really prompted the writing of how did I get here? Because I just hit this, this moment, just a perfect storm, like everyone's been through in the last few years of relational challenges and staff challenges and the whole world shifted. And it was like, Chris, do you want to keep your foot on the gas? Um, or, or I could cruise. Yeah, I've got so much momentum from 30 odd years of serving Jesus. Do I sort of cruise into the second half of life and just, and then it's again, that whole thing of Christine, don't drift from your purpose. I mean, we're in a whole, in the world right now, there seems to be so much drift. The currents are shifting. People are drifting from their faith. People are drifting from church. People are drifting from relationships. People are drifting. The pandemic has just caused, you know, people to just drift from so many things. It's time for us all to check our markers. You know, the, the writer to the Hebrews says we've got to pay extra attention lest we also drift from so great a salvation. And um, it was like if I, in my 50s, can be tempted to go, should I just take my foot off the pedal a bit, not press, not, not, not do, Paul says, you know, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that lie behind, I press on. Pressing in today's culture is very costly. Almost the whole world is, you know, like post-Christian. In fact, the way the currents have shifted in society, it's moved beyond just kind of you do you and be a Christian. Now it's like if you're a Christian, you're you're bigoted or you're racist or you're misogynistic or you're dangerous um, or you're just plain stupid that you could even believe that. I mean, that, that would be what society would yeah. think of people that would hold a traditional historical Orthodox Christian faith. Um it's costly, no matter who you are, whether you have a blue check mark like me or whether you've got five followers, that's irrelevant because in your workplace, in your street, in your community, in your home, to be an authentic, passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in this era in the West is extremely costly. And so you you have to, again, make that decision to, that, I, you know, if I'm going to follow him, I've got to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. Yeah. And uh, a lot of us have drifted from that call to discipleship of denying ourselves, taking up. We think the call to discipleship is I'm going to be a better version of me. God's going to give me whatever I want. I'm going to live my best life now. Everything's going to be awesome. That, that is drifting so far from what New Testament discipleship really is. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put my story, as I always do, put it all out there. Let me just finish reading the book, actually. And I was really struck with how you set it amongst being very vulnerable and honest about the stress and the anxiety you felt and describing that panic attack on the balcony. And But also it's, it's real practicalness in challenging us as Christians. My favourite quote from the book was that when you spoke about making friends with um, non-Christians... And, and I was listening to you speak about it in a podcast the other day as well. And you said we often refer to people who aren't Christians as the lost in inverted commas. But that actually, if we're not getting to people who don't yet know Jesus, then maybe we're the ones that are lost. Well, totally. I know. And I thought, um, I know it's so simple about when I used to write letters to my mum in Australia because she refused to learn how to do anything, including FaceTime. Um, but it is so true because if Paul says we're living epistles, I mean, you know, we're talked about as letters, living yeah. letters sent by God. It doesn't say the world's sent to us. It says we are sent by God to the world. And I, I keep laughing because I've been sitting in all these evangelism things and I'm like, you're all just in church things. Well, everyone's arguing about everything. And I'm like, I think the letter got lost. I think we're lost in the mail. I, the people are exactly where they were always going to be on this earth. The church has got lost in the mail 
and it's time, you know, with all of the stuff going on, I'm like, y'all are arguing about so much stuff that honestly does not even matter because we're lost in the mail somewhere here. So I, I pr- I'm glad you love that because I pray that it really, in its simplicity, and all of the markers are very simple. I wasn't trying to be clever. This is life and death. I'm watching people walk away from their faith. I'm watching people deconstruct their faith. I'm watching people every other day on Instagram talk about how they're again, prominent leaders, like I'm done with this, I'm gone with this, I'm renouncing Jesus, renouncing Christianity. And you're like, this is yeah. insane. I'm not trying to be smart with this. I'm telling you all as a 55-year-old woman that the finish line is closer for me than the starting line. So I'm fixing my eyes on that finish line. If I had to look back and by God's grace, I have the, the privilege of experiencing things many Christians wouldn't have experienced. I've seen God move all around the world. I've had the opportunity to preach the gospel all around the world. I've seen people saved and delivered and healed. But these are basically the nine markers that it comes down. Like to me, it's like, you're none of that ultimately matters you are not you are going to drift it doesn't matter if you're like me a global evangelist or you're somebody that nobody knows in a village in cornwall in the back of england um the fact is all of us are prone to drifting if we do not check our markers and if we do not stay connected to our anchor jesus who is this hope we have as an anchor for our soul some people may read and go you know it's pretty basic but I feel like it's almost life and death in this hour. I wanted to be extremely open, as always, but to go, listen, drifting isn't always, man, I'm leaving Christianity. I'm going to start doing sex, drugs, rock and roll. Um, it, it, drifting can be as subtle as taking your foot off the gas and going, I'm just, it's too costly to keep pressing on. It's too costly to keep going. Um, so I'm just going to slow down a bit. I'm just too old to like seriously start going to nightclubs. It's not likely going to happen. Um, it's just exhausting. I like to be in bed early now. So it's not going to be some big backslide like that, but it will be not doing everything God's put me on this earth to do. And so I think we need to examine our hearts and go, am I drifting from the purpose of God, from the mission of God, from what I've been put on this earth to do? And all you have to do to drift is nothing. More. 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 We often want more, but is it always a bad thing? Isn't wanting more knowledge a good thing? What about more understanding? More perspective. More wisdom. More action. More inclusion. Discover more of the good things at the brand new Premier Christianity magazine website. So much more than a monthly magazine, Premier Christianity website helps you go deeper in your faith and is full of inspiration of what God is doing in the world today. It's Premier Christianity but so much more. Register today at premierchristianity.com. premierchristianity.com. I have a really good friend who works in health and fitness and she always says that about our physical health, that all you have to do is just not pay attention. And because we live in the environment we we live in, you're likely to be less healthy in a year's time than you are now. It's the same with our spiritual health, isn't it? And I'm sure the devil would be a lot less successful if, you know, if you walked into my house tomorrow and said, hey, Emma, go have an affair and take some coke, I'd probably say no. But the devil's much more sneaky than that, isn't he? And and generally most of the time the, the subtlety is what gets us and we think that nothing bad is happening, but because we're not staying focused and we're not checking ourselves, we do drift. And and I think that's probably the danger in, in comfortable Western Christianity, particularly, isn't it? What I think is happening, you know, I think that urgency is the thing, because if you don't feel an urgency, which most don't, that, that is what results in drifting. And many have been drifting like for decades. It's not just, it's what, what has happened is I think just, 
where the world's been the last couple of years, and particularly this last year, I mean, with all of, not, of course, the global pandemic, but all of the political instability, the racial injustice, the things that, the, the environmental disasters all around the world. I mean, it, it is like God is getting our attention because there's not one sphere of society, whether it's economic, political, social, moral, sociological, environmental, it's like all of those things are being massively disrupted so that the church can wake up and because we needed a spiritual disruption because we're just like in a sleep mode. And until we get urgent uh, about issues of eternity, we will not take even the temporal issues seriously. I think that's, that's the deal. We might get, um, you know, everyone might be yelling at each other on Twitter for about five minutes, but it will just, you know, we'll come out of the pandemic. Everyone will go back to their jobs and, life will just resume and people's priorities will just resume. So it's like there has to be a spiritual urgency and a spiritual awakening, and we certainly need one. And I think so many have drifted, they just don't even know they've drifted. And I'm hoping that through reading this, it'll be like, oh, my gosh. And I, it's it's not a legalistic, like here's the formula. It's more let's check our hearts because that's at the end of the day, that's the only thing that will determine whether you've really drifted or not. It's, it's a heart issue. I'm hoping that the metaphor of ringing the bell and the urgency that's created with, I want my sort of last lap on this earth to really be like, come on, let's wake up, let's go, let's charge hell with a water pistol, let's go see people saved and delivered and healed like I really want to see that happen I don't really want to ask you the ubiquitous kind of how do you combine international ministry with a family and a husband because I'm pretty sure we probably don't ask most men in leadership those questions what would be the thing that you would most want to see the church get hold of today when it comes to biblical partnership in marriage and ministry Sure, you know, for us, we and again, I can't speak to everyone's circumstance, but I can 25 years later talk about us. And we married for purpose. I was going one million miles an hour one way towards Jesus, Nick was going a million miles an hour one way towards Jesus. As we were both going towards this one goal, Jesus, our paths collided. Then instead of turning inwards and stopping and just looking at one another, we just continued to do together what we were already doing alone, which was going towards Jesus. And, you know, Ecclesiastes says one will put a 1,000 to flight, two will put 10,000 to flight. So for me, and again, you know, I'm extreme. We all know this. Love would not have been enough to get married. Purpose almost had to be above love of course had to be in that equation and and the natural things like you know you've got to actually like them there has to be some chemistry there has to be yes yes tick the box but to follow Jesus I earlier years before I was already in what I perceived to be a relationship where I was deeply in love but that person was not a Jesus follower and when I became a Jesus follower I gave up that relationship to follow Jesus so I had already given up love and, um, you know, and intimacy and all of those things. So it was, that was not going to be enough to get me because I had given that up to follow Jesus. So then when Nick comes around, the Lord just had to, in a very personal way, show me through his word that by marrying Nick, we would have a tenfold impact than I would have had if I was alone. Because otherwise, back then especially, I was doing more single than most married people that I knew. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm in this for the gospel. Um, I'm going to be like, Paul, I'm, I, I, I didn't care. Like I was just, and I still am very focused, but it was like, you know, this is it. So with Nick, we did a lot of hard work before we ever got married. 
which has meant we've had a lot less friction when we are married because yeah. all those big questions and all those big conversations, they were done about purpose, traveling the world, doing whatever Jesus called us to do, how our family life, our marriage, and then having kids, how would that all look and how we would do it? All those conversations were done way before we got married. And it was so, so then when it happened, it was just an issue of making it work. Okay. So what logistic, and in every season that looks different. What did it look like the first six years before we had kids, Nick was running a business. I was doing a lot of traveling. We rarely traveled together. When I got pregnant and had Catherine, he gave up the business and he began to run the business side of the the ministry and the organization. And we were on the road together, our family. He did most of the primary care with Catherine because that's, you know, I would be uh, teaching or preaching or writing. And Nick was, hands. it was awesome. We saw it as an awesome opportunity. Um, the ministry got bigger, you know, then we were able to have other people come alongside and help us. But we never had what would be considered cultural, traditional, normal roles. Um, but I do think we have adhered to biblical roles of how our marriage works and how um, our ministry works. But we've never been in competition with each other. We've always been Jesus first, kingdom first. What does that look like and how are we going to get the job done? So it's not a matter of like, you know, we've never sat down and had this big discussion. Oh my gosh, you are the man and I am the woman. So I have to wash dishes and, you know, wash underwear. And that makes me somehow more biblical, whatever that the heck that means, because, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to work for I just do way too much travel and just see how many things we call biblical that are just cultural. And so we have always had a kingdom first, you know, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So we've had a very kingdom first marriage that has meant a lot of things that have been issues of contention for a lot of couples. And I do, I'm not diminishing that. I do realize it's real. It just hasn't been for us. So there's been very little drama, very little real arguing or, yeah, arguing about dumb stuff, but not not like uh, purpose things and mission things. And he has great strengths uh, that are not my strengths and I have great strengths that are not his strengths. And we both are so committed to God being glorified and the kingdom advancing that all we want is each other to flourish in order for that to happen. So our kids Never has it been like, have they thought, oh my gosh, we've, we're losing our parents to ministry. They've just come along for the ride. I mean, they know they're the most blessed people on earth and they've been spent all their formative years 24 seven with their parents, you know, like, like it's been fantastic. And, um, and then we've just made adjustments as that happens. What really saves you a lot of tension, I think, is when you're not looking to each other to be God. We both get from Jesus what we need from Jesus so we can just be each other's spouse. Um, because otherwise, when you're looking to your partner to give you what only God can give you, I think it leads to a lot of tension. The more whole and healthy you are, the less needy you are for kind of emotional codependent stuff from your spouse that just frees you both up to flourish in life. So, you know, we're still each other's best friend. We both, and and my husband is part of a, a mountain biking um, crew. We do stuff. I, you know, I'm, I'm climbing the, the tallest mountain in 
continental America. So I've got a bunch of girls. So we do lots of stuff mm. together and then we do lots of stuff. I'm not, I'm not trying to be everything for him and he's not being yeah. everything for me. So, and we do things that are like non-ministry and both of those groups, we make sure we have people from every realm of life so that we could be doing life with people that are not Jesus followers as well. And just kind of keeping so it doesn't just become this professional Christian speaking circuit thing. We just have life. We have we love abundant life. We we do meals with people, we fullness of life. So for us, I think the less we try to shove each other in a box of gender roles and just go purpose roles, gifting roles, the spiritual gifts are not are not gender. Mm. You know, this is the Holy Spirit, they're his gifts. And so he can disperse them exactly however he wants. And so my issue is that a lot of the stuff that I watch people consumed on, on social media arguing about, I'm like, you're, it's a bit too complicated for me. I'm just like, love God, love people, love each other and um, be a Christian, be kind. Like, look, look at the food <laughs> in school. You know, be loving and kind and good. And it's honestly not complicated. Just have the fruit of the spirit in your marriage. Be, like, just be a Christian. Say sorry really quick. Don't get, like, just like, I feel like that's what I feel like saying to people. Like, we are complicating things that are not complicated. You do not need to read Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to have a happy marriage. Be a Christian. Yeah. I think it's very practical. I like it. It's accessible. <laughs> it's not so loving that advice. Like I think half of our stress would be over if people were just Christians. Half your un- online trauma would be over if you just have nothing to do with foolish discussions. Just be be kind, and use the block and mute button really liberally. Like it's, it's, <laughs> yes. you'll sleep better at night, and it's awesome. So we we also have in common that we both have teenage girls. Mine are a little bit younger than yours. But um, the, I mean, I know there's no silver bullet for raising your kids in the faith and passing on your love for Jesus to them necessarily. What are the, some of the things you think are important in order to try and give our kids a, an experience of Jesus that is attractive and genuine and worthy of giving their whole lives to? Well, I think more is caught than taught, it, it, 100%. Um, so if we love it, they're more likely to love it. So for us... They have just seen their mum and dad, number one, hopefully, not perfectly, but faithfully, um, walk the walk. So there's a difference. Sometimes we think, um, have I made mistakes? Yes. You know, have I failed? Yes. Have I been faithful? Yes. Like, like so the thing is that, you know, you, you, I think all that is part of faithfulness. I think sometimes we equate perfection with faithfulness as opposed to just being real with being faithful. So, and in my case, you know, the testing would be even greater because I am so public and they have seen so much of my life on a platform. I mean, if I was a hypocrite behind the scenes, there would be no chance that you know, I would have, that, that instantly would have been, my girls would have been off to a bad start. So um, I think step one is at least they haven't seen hypocrisy. Things that I've done because I am obviously a woman and I've got daughters and I have such a public profile and they, they've seen me in that place so much. I tend to not be overly spiritual at home. And what, what I mean by that is I'm not um, pulling out saying, let's have a Bible study every day. I mean, the, the kids would just go, so I'm going to be the one that's watching a movie with them and I'm laughing with them. And what has worked in my favor is, you know, when they were sort of embarrassed about me for five minutes, all of their friends follow me. So they're like, suddenly they're realizing, oh, my mom's cool. That, you know, <laughs> I'm like, yes, I was a youth worker for 15 years. What do you think? But, you know, so I was not cool to them. The beginning of every year, you know, um, it would be like, don't you dare come to our school and do any chapels and don't. Then their kids would be like, when is your mum? And suddenly 
they're realizing they're going to get brownie points if they get their mum to come to school and do their so it all shifted so all that was a really good thing that our house is the house that everyone loves to come to. They, their friends come on vacation with us. They're, so it's it's very normal, not compromising. I mean, the, 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 what, what, the things that we're, we're pretty strict on um, is going to church. I mean, that's the thing is like the, the no negotiables. Like I'm, I'm not even going to ask you if you feel like it at this point. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to let them talk bad about people or gossip about people. So there's stuff like that mm. where they're, and, you know, hopefully I'm not doing it so that it's it's not replicated. But um. They see that we genuinely care about people. They're very much, when I say involved in the ministry, they volunteer. They're very aware from the outset, uh, always age appropriate, but that there are people that are being trafficked around the world. They're very uh, aware of their privilege and their blessing compared to what's happening. They've seen a lot. Um, so we've taken them with us. And again, my thing is rather than me sitting down and having a Bible study with them, it's making sure that I walk the walk because they hear me talk the talk a lot. I mean, the fact is I am their mother and I speak 45 Sundays a year and, you know, um, I, I do what I do. So the thing is that for me, making sure I walk the walk, it was even more important in our case than um, talking the talk. And so, and surrounding them, because I was an older mom, I had my first at 35, my second at 40. So I've always, I've always believed it takes a village that I don't need to be everything. All I need to be is my kid's mother. I'm not everything. So I've got a bunch of great youth leader, 20 odd year old girls that, you know, I know, what do I know about TikTok? I don't even know what bands are on in the, in the you know, I know nothing. Um, so I surround them with people that I trust that are awesome young women of God. And I just say to them, you know, unless I need to know something, I want you just to pastor my kids. Like, oh, you know, I'm not, if I try to be their mother and their pastor and their Bible teacher, and I mean, it becomes really messy. So I'm like, I am what I am, which is their mother who is a Jesus follower. Therefore, hopefully my life reflects that. Thank God. And I don't know, this is really the grace of God. Definitely. I would be like in one of their top three preachers. So that's really helpful. Um, So, you know, they actually like to listen to me. And, and, and the other thing is they see, you know, their father in, in terms of um, like spiritual disciplines and consistency, Nick is, leaves me for dead um you know he's down at 5 30 every morning in his chair so my daughters when they get up for school when they're getting ready they just see us doing it they just they just certainly just see the deal and he's extremely hands-on so he's the one that has done like prayers and devotions at night with the girls um whether we're on the road and we facetime in or whether they've been with us it is helpful in our case that he is so highly engaged. I know not everyone has that and God can make a way and make up for any of that. But certainly in our case, they've got a mum that's not trying to be them, that is allowing them to be teenagers and a mum that's, uh, because I'm so aware that in some areas I'm in the spotlight, I really make sure I step out of that to allow them, like even when it comes to their making their decisions about college and university right now, my eldest, of just like letting her be her and giving her space to not have to in any way live in my kind of shadow. Or And I think we've been very upfront from the beginning. Uh, just because we do what our, our, we do does not yeah. mean that our kids need to in any way have any pressure on them to not be normal kids. And certainly even in their schools, they they would not feel any of that pressure from their father or I. And like I've said to them, I said, look, I've made my decision. I'm a Jesus follower. I can't make you be one. I can hopefully inspire you to want to be one, but I'm going to be your mum, whatever decision you make. And I think giving them that sense of autonomy while modelling an authentic Again, I say not perfect, but authentic Christian life has made them, 
own this faith for themselves. That's and of course, you pray all the time. <laughs> there, there's no magic pill because no. people that I know that are so godly are, are really contending for their kids, right? There's no reason why their kids shouldn't be following Jesus. You know what I mean? So, and I think because I was a youth worker for so long, to me, there is no magic formula. So, and I would never want to put shame or condemnation on kids. You, do, There are people that I know that have done it so much better than me and their kids should be following Jesus and they're not. Like, so you just kind of go, okay, we all just have to be on our knees and yes. support each other and not condemn each other and not shame each other. And I think I'm just such a big person. I'm, look, it takes a village. I'm not pretending that, you know, it can be all me. And I would say that to all parents, like, get help. We all need help. No, definitely. I I wrote an article last month for the magazine about uh, children in youth work and the importance of um, everybody playing their part in the life of the young people in their church. I think the individualization is, of our Western society is not helping us with families. So Mm -hmm. I have a background of sexual abuse. So make no mistake, I'm not willy nilly about who I'm going to let come into my home or I'm very mindful, but I'm very aware we certainly need help. And so with the right discernment and make no mistake, we we have a responsibility to be extremely careful. I would just want to say that because I feel like we have to say it in today's world. As we wrap up, what I'd like to ask you really is this book is incredibly timely, probably one of those things that you started planning long before lockdown happened. And then you're like, oh, surprise surprise some of those last chapters during the first three months of lockdown I'm like I couldn't have made this up but I knew with what I was going through in 2016 2017 although I have to tell you probably at least a hundred times I said to God this is not worth it I don't care that you're going to get glory out of this this is killing me actually that's sort of when I had that visceral sort of mild panic attack I'm like this is not worth it this is not worth it like, I'd love to say I was like, y'all, I'm so glad I went this through for you all. I knew deep down because I've walked enough with Jesus over 30 years that somewhere at some point this would be used and there must be something coming up because it's a story of my life. There mm. must be something coming up somewhere that I've had to go through this. But this one is the first one more than all the others that I just kept saying, this is not worth it. I don't, this is too painful. Like I, I wish I could be a real martyr and just pretend. But now, you know what? It was worth it. But it's taken me a few years to get there. I've got yeah. to tell you You know, I think that is phenomenal. That's the honesty that we all need to hear sometimes, isn't it? Because the truth is we all feel like that. Everybody goes to that. Whatever they do or whoever they are in the Christian life, it doesn't matter whether you're a big ministry leader or just someone going about their everyday life. There are moments when all of us feel overwhelmed or want to check out or just like, God, this is not worth it. This is too hard, too painful, too stressful. This year, like we've said, probably more than ever, people have had to cope with things they never felt they'd have to cope with, have been under stresses that they did not see coming, have had support mechanisms taken away. As the church comes out of this, we are necessarily going to have to be dealing with some of those issues in ourselves individually and and within our congregations. How do you think we are best going to tackle that? What what does the church need to do from here? What do we do? You know, uh, my friend Alan Hirsch says um, we have to read Jesus and meaning like just come right back to that central place. I think we're all saying the same thing in this, that, listen, you know, my whole book is like, Jesus is this hope we have as an anchor for our soul, both firm and secure. What we have learned, um, if we hadn't known it already, is that you can't put your hope, your trust, 
um, in anything else. Because you just think 15 months ago, an invisible virus that we couldn't even see shut the world down. So I'm sitting here going, if anyone ever laughs at me again for believing in an invisible God that I can't see, I'm like, listen, y'all, this invisible virus that nobody could see affected economics and, uh, you know, environment and just the whole world. We got locked down. So perhaps this God that I cannot see is the source of my hope in the same way as it seems to be invisible things are the, are the true source of our despair. And I think the Lord has given us this invitation. We have seen, especially with all the things that have been exposed in the last year, and we can't ignore the, in, within the church, the misogyny and the racism and the sexism and the abuse uh, over here in America, you know, the white supremacy, the nationalism, just so much that you just go, whoa. And God's just going, um, my church is actually about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone and the Jesus of the gospels. My friend Alan Hirsch says this, you know, if it doesn't look like Jesus, smell like Jesus, feel like Jesus, act like Jesus, it's not the church. If it's all about either rules or regulations or legalism or it's not Jesus. And so I think for all of us, it's like, let's crack open the gospel of Luke and just read all over again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What did Jesus look like? What did Jesus say? How did Jesus act? And am I looking like this? Am I talking like this? Am I acting like this? Do I seem like this in my workplace, in my family, on my social media profiles? I think we just became so institutionalized and cared more about protecting a form or a system or a structure than we did about the Jesus of the Bible. So when you go, what does the church do? It's read Jesus. Let's get anchored. And I think when I, I was like, guys, however you want this to look, I'm just telling you, your significance and your security, it's not going to come from a big ministry. It's not going to come from a big church. It's not going to come from your career, your salary, your position, your title, your significance and security, value, esteem, dignity, purpose can only come from Jesus. And so he is this hope we have. We've seen that in this last year. Nothing else is going to do it. Nothing else is our ultimate hope. Everything else has been shattered. Everything else has been shaken. And, you know, the writer to the Hebrew said, only those things that can be shaken will be shaken so that those things that cannot be shaken shall remain. And we're all sitting here and we're about to go back out into the real world again and go, what really is the only thing that wasn't shaken? Environment was shaken. Politics was shaken. Justice was shaken. The institution of the church was shaken. Friendships and relationships, people were shaken. And you go, oh, my gosh, what's the only thing that remains? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, maybe. Oh, that's what Christianity is all about. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So I'm like, y'all, uh, when we say back to basics, I'm like, there was nothing else. Let me just shake all the stuff that you thought it was. And uh, so if you are rooted and grounded in Jesus and anchored to Jesus, you're good. You're going to be okay. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad you did not ring the bell and I cannot wait to see what comes next. Now that you've decided you're not quitting and you're carrying on with whatever Jesus has got for the rest of your life. Come on, girl. Now, this is like back on the accelerator. Let's go. That was Christine Kane speaking to me, Emma Fowl, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundred more conversations just like this, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for the profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile.